Welcome to another special topic episode of the Olefins Weekly Wrap-Up, a podcast by IHS Market. Today is Wednesday, August 18th. I'm Erin Roberts. Joelle Morales, IHS Market Executive Director of Polyolefins Americas, joins us today to have a conversation with Carlo about the volatility of the propylene market. Welcome back to the podcast, Joelle. Thanks for having me. Always a pleasure to be on. Yeah, I think you're our most um, frequent guest on the podcast. This must be your third or fourth episode with us. It's always uh, great uh, great to be uh, time. I, mean, I wish it was a little better news with this one with all the volatility we're having to deal with, but as always, glad to be here. Yeah, he's always on because uh, we're always talking about propylene volatility. I think that's the reason why we always have him on because we've, been, <laughs> uh, we've had a highly volatile propylene market over the last 12 months. Yeah, well, we appreciate you coming back on the podcast. And speaking of volatility, there was a revision to our propylene forecast this week. And before we get into the why, Carlo, can you explain how we do our forecasts? I mean, that's an excellent question. So what we have is we have this big crystal ball and we rub it a little and then all of a sudden some clouds start <laughs> appearing with it. No, I'm joking. <laughs> totally joking. No, so our forecasts are, are really fundamentally based. And what I mean by that is we look at a lot of different supply factors, a lot of different demand factors, and also cost factors. And we bake them all in into this uh, multivariable regression price model. And three of the major components of that model are oil prices, of course, uh, but also propylene inventories, as well as propane volume into chemicals. On the propylene inventory front, that's the number we try our best to, to get the best number possible there, because uh, that's, that's a huge mover in our price model. And how we arrive at that number is we look at a variety of supply drivers. So steam cracker uh, supply, and we do that via modeling uh, on our steam cracker ethylene side. And then uh, also uh, from a refining standpoint, we work very closely with our refining crew to help us get uh, FCC fluidized catalytic cracker operating rates um, that helps drive our FCC model to produce refinery-based propylene. And then we also have our on-purpose um, on modeling uh, driven by our, um, our operating schedule on those units. And so we mix all that together to get a supply outlook. And from a demand standpoint, that's where Joel and some of his other colleagues on the smaller derivatives get involved because what they do on their supply demand modeling rolls up to us and we, their production actually becomes our demand. So when we balance, when we do our balances quarterly, monthly, et cetera, uh, we try to take those views that they give us, uh, the views that we're modeling internally, and we come up with a with a view on inventories. And we do this basically on a weekly basis on the propylene side. Um, Joel, is there anything else you'd like to add on that? No, I, I just I guess I'll say that we haven't made life easy for the propylene forecast this year and polypropylene. We're seeing some of the strongest demand growth that we've seen since 2010. The market is uh, really on, on fire for multiple reasons. But um, with a higher pool on specifically polymerated propylene, it's just contributed to one side of the factor of, of the volatility so far. 
Yeah, I think the other side of the factor, Joel, you raised a good point about um, you know volatility because the other side is the supply. And what we've seen, and this gets back to what Aaron was asking, the why, we, we had a big revision in the forecast. We've seen uh, a lot of outages, uh, specifically from an on-purpose perspective here in 2021. Of course, we had the great freeze, but that was largely a supply supportive event for propylene. And that's why you know, prices came down off that really, really high level in February down to you know, the upper 50s in April, but then they, they rocketed right back up over the last three months. And it's really driven by, well, the demand on, on, on Joel's side, but really also supply outages. We've had a, a, a big constraint on, specifically on polymer grade uh, uh, propylene, and that has driven uh, the price to, to very, very high levels. Um, we can get into that uh, in more detail. Mm -hmm. Well, so I know, Joelle, you've been getting a lot of questions from clients. What are some of those that you've been getting and what do we need to help them understand? Well, I think one of the key issues, and it's a bit nuanced, is I know our Olefins group has done a great job developing inventory view, views over the last uh, few years. And this interaction between refinery grade, chemical grade, and, and polymer grade. Sometimes I think when people look at these charts of five-year propylene inventories, they really need to be focused on within that how much polymer grade propylene there is, because it seems like the dynamics, even though we, we may be on the low end of a five-year inventory level for propylene, if you dig deeper, the actual available inventory of polymer grade, which you need specifically for polypropylene, is even lower than history. Yeah, that's a that's a good point, Joel. One of the things that prevents us from being able to provide a, a very good outlook on the different grades um, in terms of uh, inventories, what prevents us is we don't get uh, very consistent data from our trusted data sources, which would be the AFPM and also EIA. Sometimes the data that we get from AF, AFPM on the uh, propylene inventories doesn't match exactly with what we, we're getting from EIA in terms of refinery-based uh, inventories. So it it really is a balancing act that when we get that data in and we try to triangulate the right level, we can only do it to, uh, to a really uh, consistent number on the total propylene uh, number. And so I think that's that's where we would love to be able to provide different uh, grades and inventories of different grades. It's just not consistent enough. But what I would say is when you're looking at our inventory projections, and in fact, we'll be publishing uh, an inventory report uh, today, we publish it twice a month. Uh, but today what you'll see is on average, you, propylene inventories are about 1.8 billion pounds. And what you can think about those what you can look at on those inventories are essentially two thirds, one third, right? Two thirds refinery grade, one third polymer chem grade. So that's 1.2 billion pounds for refinery grade and, you know, call it 600 million pounds on, uh, on polymer and chem grade. And, and roughly of that polymer chem grade inventory, it's on average 50, 50, right? So with inventories right now at about 1.4 ish, billion pounds, 
we know that refinery grade production is on the normal side based on the AFPM uh, numbers that we just got uh, for the second quarter. And in fact, when we cross-reference that with the EIA numbers in terms of refinery grade production, uh, we're actually at, at levels even higher than what we saw in 2018 on a monthly production basis. And so we really are producing a, a fair amount of refinery grade. So when we're looking at the inventories at 1.4 billion pounds, we're roughly at the normal levels of inventories for refinery grade. Again, these are all estimates because we don't have uh, a way to consistently provide those views on a you know week in, week out basis. And so at 1.2 billion pounds, given a total of 1.4, you're really you're really only at 200 million pounds worth of inventory for PGCG. And given where polymer grade has been trading, our kind of rough back of the envelope uh, calculation is we started August with about 50 million pounds of spare inventory in the, uh, in the system for polymer grade itself. And what was interesting is once we once these outages and specifically outages on on-purpose unit and even a, a bigger outage on a splitter side, once these outages uh, turned out to be longer than expected, uh, we saw 50 million pounds worth of deals transacted in the low 80s. But as soon as that next tranche of deals happened, I mean, the prices spiked to 90 plus cents per pound. And that that was really telling because we think we got that wild guess uh, pretty spot on in terms of what was available. And so now these prices that we're seeing in the market, um, that's basically people buying volume from others and they're dipping into their you know, safety stock or, you know, they're they're lowering their operating rate uh, and betting on the come that these units will will uh, will start up in short order or they're just operating at a lower utilization. That's that's kind of the sense that what we're getting uh, based on our conversations with people in the industry. And then uh, also, you know, kind of our, our rough estimations of when we're looking at inventories by grade. So if there's no inventory of PGP, that's basically what the issue is as far as the demand and supply. Um, what needs to happen for this forecast to change? That's a that's a great question. I think when when we're looking at where we could be wrong, uh, because we ask ourselves that question many times when we're doing a forecast revision, where we could be wrong is the level of de forward demand, right? So Joel gives us a demand outlook. Uh, not only Joel, but also uh, our other derivatives colleagues, so like Kevin Longworth on the on the acrylonitrile side, David Brown on the propylene oxide. Um, Peter Fang on Qmean. So when they give us these uh, these outlooks, you know, that that's the biggest source of where we could be wrong. One thing that I also will mention is that when we look at our balances, what has been very interesting to see is that uh, imports from Canada play a very very small role in the grand scheme of the um, uh, of the U.S. propylene market because the market is really centered on the U.S. Gulf Coast. Uh, but those those imports from Canada come into the Midwest and even into the East Coast. Um, we're running, you know, slightly lower, uh, well, considerably lower than what we have been in, in past years. Uh, we're running about if the monthly inventory or monthly uh, 
imports from Canada are around 35 million pounds. We're roughly importing only 10 million pounds from there. So that's that's every little bit helps in this little uh, in in this very constrained environment. And so um, having that has really shorted the market. Um, so you know if that if that continues, that's a place where we could be wrong because we we have a resumption of those imports coming back. Uh, the other place where we could be wrong is exports. So given these high prices, maybe exports of monomer drive down to zero, right? Uh, because it just becomes cost prohibitive to, to import monomer from the US, uh, especially when you look at the global dynamics in Asia, very long uh, in terms of, of propylene uh, relative to the US. Uh, so you know that, that's a source of, of uncertainty. The other thing that I would say is uh, from a supply standpoint, we're getting everything that we're going to get. I think one of the main drivers behind this uh, this forecast change is we can't just assume that the on purpose, which is the incremental supply to the propylene market, we can't assume that it's going to operate at 80 percent. It's it, when, when we look at history, it, it barely even uh, cracks the 80 percent number. Um, it's really closer to. Um, to the 70% number. And so that's something that we've adjusted for here going forward because there's there's consistent reliability concerns uh, when operating these units, at least here in the U.S. Joel, you're quiet. Well, I'd say on the demand side, what would have to happen for polypropylene, which polypropylene is, is the biggest by far uh, demand driver for polymer grades specifically, we we with this higher forecast for the rest of the year and next year in order to slow the market down we we upped our assumptions for imports we added around 500 million pounds more of imports to lower the operating rates for uh, polypropylene in 2022 to provide a little bit more room for some propylene inventory so currently as i mentioned we're over 13 percent through july we think demand will scale down to the second half of the year as people rebuild their stocks. There'll be some destocking, we think, in the fourth quarter, assuming there's no major weather events. We come in somewhere around seven, seven and a half percent this year. And with the growing economy, we have growth in polypropylene for 2022 at just under three percent. So when, when we look at that and ask ourselves, well, can it grow less? Can it grow more? Can we import more? Can we export less? We really don't see too many knobs. We have pretty low imports for the region, would be some of the lowest. Uh, I'm sorry, we have pretty low imp uh, exports for 2022 on the assumption. So there's not really much room to back off there. Imports are not going to be this record high level of 21, but still pretty high. So we don't think we can add any more. There's a lot of uncertainty with global freight. We've all heard a lot how the arbitrage between the polypropylene price in North America and the Asia price, which before 2021 was a record of 31 cents back in 2016 and in 2018. Well, this month we're gonna be approaching 90 cents per pound. So that number seems staggering and it should invite a ton of imports. The challenge is, is imports, we've never really seen them come in at that 10, 11% of the market demand needs. So, I like to joke about if if it was free and you could import polypropylene for free, it doesn't mean you could use it in applications. You can't use it in medical, food. Uh, there's a lot of it. Most applications you can't use it in without some kind of approval process. 
So when we when we put the imports at the highest level that we think are reasonable for 22, at the same time there's new polypropylene capacity coming on in Canada, and we balance that export assumption, we we really don't see a, a big potential lever where we can really do more and give more propylene back into the system. And I think that's a big driver when, when Carlo's coming to us asking for relief for 2022, and we basically say there's there's no there's no room. His only response is to keep pushing the price to get us to get that import level to where we've raised it. I think that's kind of how we've iterated, Carlo. Wouldn't you say? Yes, that's uh, that's a perfect uh, way to put it. Uh, that and that's really the crux of the argument. Going back to uh, the trade and the container issues that you spoke of briefly, um, really the U.S. is essentially a protected market at this point, right? Because from a polypropylene propylene perspective, um, so that's what's giving that issue right there is what's giving legs to the the polymer grade price um, here in the ninety plus cent per pound uh, level for for spot trading. Um, the one thing I would mention is when you're looking at all the other derivatives, we're essentially at the pain point right now. And that's where we've set the price. Um, looking at our models and, and verifying those models with affordability, this is the pain price. This is the, part, the, the point where derivatives, uh, other derivatives, may have to start scratching their heads and, th and thinking, man, do I really want to run at higher utilizations here? understand that my value chains downstream are depleted, but do I really want to be building inventories at 90 plus cent per pound um, propylene feedstock? And, and I think the answer will be no. Um, but even when we're looking at, you know, the September window, because I know your, your clients, uh, they like to look at one month ahead. We've already got one physical deal on the books for the September window, and it's at 85 cent per pound. Right. So there is the expectation that these outages, you know, PDH outage and splitter outage uh, will resolve itself here in short order. Uh, but still at 85 cent per pound for the first trade of the September window, that's that's a very telling uh, number. And um, and if I can go back to the trade, Joel, I mean, from from a monomer perspective, people would just ask, well, why don't we just import monomer? If we can't get polymer in, you know, why don't we import monomer, which is a different uh, set of logistics uh, relative to uh, container shipping. And the answer isn't quite as simple because uh, we really aren't set up to bring monomer in. And I think one cargo made its way in uh, about six months ago, uh, but it, it wasn't a slam dunk. It had to go through a number of hurdles. It had to go through uh, one of the enterprise terminals to just to be able to bring it in. And then it had to go through the logistics system, the pipeline system, just to be able to have it delivered. So it's not a, it's not a very easy market to import monomer. And so then it becomes a question of downstream derivatives and do they cut back? Uh, I think that's where we uh, on the, on the monomer side um, have to work very closely with you to, to understand those dynamics so that way we can better set the price. But right now, I mean, you know, where we have the price forecast and how we've jumped it up, uh, this is the pain point. And then when we look forward into 2022, this is where the iteration started, right, Joel, where we were saying, hey, look, I got inventories way below the five-year minimums. And we're basically digging into, uh, into the refinery grade stock 
and trying to split that as fast as possible, which we don't think can happen because the refineries are are producing at a normal level and demand is just so brisk on the downstream and it didn't seem logical. So we we iterated back and forth and we still have inventories uh, below the five year minimum and for the first half of 22. And so that that gave us a little bit more courage uh, from a fundamental perspective. And when we run those through our models to be able to set the prices at, at a higher level. But if we're wrong on the derivative side, right, then there could be some downside risk. It's just right now that downside risk seems to be uh, on the lower probability scale. No, it's a very difficult forecast scenario for the resin buyers, converters, users they they look at this forecast and it, it it probably tells them that they need to continue to look at imports as a, as a strategic strategy of buying for for next year and the challenge is is right now importing is is very expensive there's delays there's all kinds of stories of shortages here in in the US exporting facilities around the world but with 90 cent type arbs and you know, currently our arbitrage between North America and the Asia price next year above 50 cents, people are gonna have to take a hard look at that. Now, you can't say resin producers, polypropylene producers are suffering because their margins are at historical highs, but a lot of these PP producers are not integrated into propylene the way that polyethylene is integrated into ethylene. The, you know, the biggest sellers of propylene in the market don't make polypropylene. Right. In, in general, so that's correct. They they can't forecast and control their their monomer price. So it's just a, it's a very unique balance with an uncertain future on global freight, which we assume will be elevated next year and is part of our scenario. So if if freight comes back down much faster than we think, then the price of importing will go down and the volumes of importing should go up. Then the question becomes again, how much can you actually bring in month after month after month without getting new approvals and new investments by 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 the converters? And so we're 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 looking at all that. But you know, the other question I think, Carl, that comes up is you keep talking about having all this RGP, and some of the converters have asked, well, why can't we build more splitters? Why can't how can we get that RGP to PGP in a fast period of time? And I don't think that's a simple answer, is it? No. No, because, I mean, splitter investments, yeah, they're cheaper than building PDH units, obviously, but uh, third-party splitters, you know, they're, they do make money uh, in, in a normal market. It's just given the energy transition, the, the people that have a leg up on the third-party uh, splitters are the guys that are refiners, right? So refiners know whether they're going to shut down their refinery or not, given the new, the looming energy transition. Um, I think if you were to look at Shell Convent, which shut down uh, earlier this year for good, um, their FCC was was fairly sizable, and they were producing about 280,000 tons uh, of RG. I think some of that was sent over to uh, a Lone Star splitter. But now that splitter is, is scrounging for volume in, in other places because, you know, they lost their source of supply. And I think that's the biggest risk, right? Uh, so if, if there's a risk of losing supply, then that means, um, you know, the, the price has to go up uh, from, a, 
from a, uh, a tolling perspective. So that's why you don't see a lot of these uh, splitters built uh, on spec or on speculation. Um, and especially when we're talking about midstream operators, um, they want to have a guaranteed rate of return and they want it on a tolling basis. They want to have taker pays. Um, and, and that's where I, I think things get uh, a little more complicated uh, when you're talking about building out third party splitting capacity. And, and let's be let's be fair. I mean, building a splitter is not an insignificant process. I mean, you, um, there basically are two towers and they have a hundred trays within each tower. I mean, these are, uh, they're distillation columns, but um, they're, they're, it's a little bit more complex. So there's a lot of metal, metallurgy involved. There's a lot of metalworking involved. And so you can't just you know, go go by Starbucks and order up a, a, a splitter, right? So, you know, these they, these investments take time. And uh, when you're in a, refining, in a refining environment and you're looking at, uh, well, should I invest money in a, in a propylene splitter, splitter or should I expand my hydrocracker? I think other, other units would take precedence. Now, we do have this new study that's coming out from fuels to chemicals and refining integration, et cetera. And I think they're finalizing uh, the work on that study. And it's available now if you want to talk to your, um, uh, to your IHS market salesperson uh, to get more information. But shameless plug there. But no, seriously, uh, when we're looking at refining integration, that's, that's a big point of emphasis for refiners. So, you know, could we see more splitter investments in the future? Yes, but not immediately. It, it, it might take two or three years before we see more uh, expanded splitter capacity. So, Carlo, as you as you describe the the scenario more and how difficult it is to to bring needed PGP supply, we've never seen a historical arbitrage like we're seeing today in the, in our forecasting. Which another way to look at the arbitrage is a North American buyer of polypropylene has never been more disadvantaged on making their widget versus someone in Asia. So right. this will test polypropylene versus other materials versus projects moving forward, can can converters, it may not even be about intermaterial substitution. It will be, can I get my cost passed through to my downstream big box store to keep my product on the shelf? So I, I, I think, as I think this through, that 2.9% growth assumption in 2022 probably has some risk associated with it, regardless of our GDP expectations because there are going to be some segments of the market that probably aren't going to be as successful passing on this increases as others. And we, we could see a, a bit of a reaction in, in demand that way. But I can tell you this, if you're using polypropylene for the next few years in North America, you're using it because you absolutely have to have it for its properties and its application. And you're in a segment that allows you some kind of pass through in a timely manner to survive this, this, uh, these price spikes. Yeah, I think, well, that's when we look at our balances, I think it's interesting when you were talking about uh, converters having to seriously look at uh, imports and even if they're time delayed, it doesn't matter. These At these prices, you know, you could come off 50 cents a pound and you're still uh, doing well given the arbitrage that you talked about. But I would say the same situation is applicable to the monomer side, because when we're looking at exports of monomer, we have structural trade that goes to Latin America. 
but when they they are looking at opportunities, Asia is a very a very attractive opportunity because prices for monomer in in that market they're literally half on a spot basis than what we're seeing right now. Um, so even if prices correct by 20, 30 percent, you're still good, right? Importing monomer from Asia. Um, so you're so I think importers of material from the U.S. Um, may have more courage now with this new forecast to be able to say, you know what, it might take me two and a half months to get the product in here, but uh, that may be a risk worth taking just given the fact that uh, prices in the U.S. have dislocated so much. No, good point. Let me let me just be clear on the PP arbitrage because of the way the, the, the traders work and and there's a lot of variation in what regions it comes from, but in a lot of cases, people from other parts of the world, they're really trying to sell at the North American price minus a small discount, as opposed to their cost opportunity of going to Asia versus North America. So in most cases, they're not gonna save 50 cents, but there's definitely a lot of savings for some. And you know, our forecast, because of these outages that have happened, unfortunately keeps changing but there's been people that they're they're scared because they don't want to wait 90 days and i i think um like you said i think more people are going to be willing to take that risk as they see it potentially being more of a structural issue for 2022 because we can no longer with confidence say don't worry this is going to all go away and get better in three to six months and we're going to return to pre-pandemic relationships because that doesn't look to be in the cards right now so I guess if we could summarize, you know, why we changed the forecast. <laughs> why we, we changed the forecast because, uh, you know, ultimately these outages that we had, um, they lingered longer than what we were expecting. And given that, they've already strained, they put additional strain on an already delicate balance that what we had on the polymer grade side. And you know, given the nuances of polymer grade versus chemical grade versus refinery grade, when you're specifically looking at polymer grade, that that market is so constrained and so in such short supply that you know the the price has nowhere to go but up until uh, until consumers of polymer grade try uncle. I think so. Well, that's a good conclusion. I want to thank you, Joel, for coming back. Um, I would say we look forward to having you again, but if that means that things get even crazier, maybe I shouldn't say that. Yeah, um, no, hopefully, uh, hopefully we got some more favorable news for the buy side of the equation next time. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on SoundCloud or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a like or leave a review if you enjoy it. Check out ihsmarket.com chemical for more information on subscribing to our services. And if you have questions or want us to cover something more specific, you can send an email to me at aaron.roberts at ihsmarket.com. Until next time.